Hello, my name is Spencer Wright, and this is episode 19 of the Waltz Oasis podcast. On this show, I discuss animals and the people who helped create them from the world of Disney. Topics come from the world of animated and live-action film, shorts, parks, documentaries, and more. Please follow the podcast on Instagram on my personal page at SpencerWright19070 and the show page at Walt Oasis, where I'll post pictures of subjects discussed. And feel free to email me at waltoasis at gmail.com with any feedback, questions, or episode suggestions. Episode suggestions are always welcome. This week, I will have two segments, the first discussing the animated short, The Autograph Hound. The Autograph Hound, starring Donald Duck, is a short directed by Jack King, which released on September 1st, 1939. In the short, despite a watchful security guard, Donald is able to successfully sneak into a movie studio in order to get celebrities' autographs, thus being an autograph hound. Many respectful caricatures and scenes of stars are included, most of which appear for a few seconds or less on screen. Donald sneaks into the studio by pretending to be in Greta Garbo's vehicle. Greta Garbo was a prominent star of both sound and silent film, who would have been recognizable to audiences at the time. We see Donald interact with stars like Mickey Rooney, Shirley Temple, Sonia Henney, and the Ritz Brothers. We also see appearances from Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, ventriloquist dummy Charlie McCarthy, Catherine Hepburn, Lionel Barrymore, Charles Boyer, and more. And many of these names are still quite well known, um, but quite a few are now virtually forgotten. When Donald is caught by the security guard and gives him his name, word immediately spreads that Donald Duck is there and the stars flock to get his autograph. Walt Disney told Motion Picture Harold in June 1938 that even with the success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, he had no intention of reducing the production of animated shorts. Walt said, quote, as a matter of fact, not only are we not letting up on shorts, we are putting more emphasis on them than ever before. Shorts are box office. I believe in putting entertainment on the screen. That's my business. It's what the public expects from Disney, and it's what they will get more and more of, unquote. In this article, the Autograph Hound's release was set for July 21st, 1939, and others announced as in production included Ferdinand the Bull, Mother Goose Goes Hollywood, and The Ugly Duckling. Released on September 1st, 1939, Box Office Magazine listed it as their short of the week for the week of November 25th, 1939. They stated in part, The color work is beautiful, and it is a short which will garnish any program with just the right thing it needs. At this time, animated shorts being shown with other things, perhaps a newsreel, a travelogue, and a full-length movie. And I primarily mention this short as it shows the rise of Donald Duck as a star in his own right, almost eclipsing Mickey Mouse. Donald premiered in the 1934 Silly Symphony, The Wise Little Hen, and by the 1940s overtook Mickey Mouse in the number of shorts being, number of cartoon shorts being released. While Donald did star in some, such as The Autograph Hound, he was also commonly featured with Mickey, Goofy, and Pluto. Animation director David Hand explained, Once he had gotten his web foot in the Walt Disney Studios' door, there was no stopping him. He came in ever so humble, kindly, sweet, and very ingratiatingly. But once he was firmly inside, it was a different story. 
he simply took over, lock, stock, and noisy squawk. Unquote. In part, the irascible and impulsive, Don- impulsive Donald provided more interesting story possibilities. Jack Hanna, who eventually directed 65 Donald Duck shorts, stated, Donald Duck's temper made him an easier character to work with than Mickey Mouse. I remember many stories were started with Mickey, but as soon as they started to rough the mouse up, somebody would come up and say, well, that's more of a Donald Duck story. And because Walt had a special love for Mickey Mouse, he didn't want to see him roughed up. Uh, For example, in this short, we see Donald always running away from a gruff security guard as Donald flouts the rules hunting for autographs. Mickey Mouse is more of a reactive character versus Donald who might instigate the action or conflict. Walt wrote for Dell Magazine in 1948, Mickey had become a hero in the eyes of his audience, especially the youngsters. Mickey could do no wrong. I can never attribute any meanness or callow traits to him. We kept him lovable, although ludicrous, in the blundering heroics. And that's the way he remained, despite any outside influences. And while Donald Duck is not callous or mean in this short, he is flouting the rules and being brazen in his actions. And audiences loved and continue to love Donald's short fuse and his reactivity to his environment. When one enters Hollywood Studios, one of the four theme parks at Walt Disney World, there are a variety of billboards advertising things from the golden age of Hollywood. On the left, after one enters the park and begins to walk up Hollywood Boulevard, there is a large billboard advertising the short. The Autograph Hound is a bright, vibrant work, which does not seem to receive adequate attention. While it is not currently on Disney+, Plus, it can be found on YouTube. For the second segment, I shall discuss The Walrus and the Carpenter, as seen in 1951's Alice in Wonderland. The Wallace and the Carpenter is a poem by Englishman Lewis Carroll, included in his 1871 book Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There. This was a sequel to 1865's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Disney used portions of both to create the 1951 animated film Alice in Wonderland. In the film, a young girl named Alice falls down a rabbit hole chasing a white rabbit and enters Wonderland, a world filled with zany, mysterious, and dark inhabitants. We see Tweedledee and Tweedledum recite a poem to Alice, which tells of a walrus and carpenter walking along a beach. And I'm referring to what we see in the film. Coming across a group of oysters, they persuade the oysters to join them. Hungry and gluttonous, the walrus and carpenter eat them all. The tale is told to Alice as a cautionary tale. In the Disney version, the walrus eats all of the oysters to the great displeasure of the carpenter. And it's a cautionary tale in that Alice is curious, just as the oysters were, and look what happened to them. Ward Kimball previously animated characters like Pinocchio's Jiminy Cricket and Cinderella's Lucifer and served as sequence director for this portion of the film. J. Pat O'Malley performed all of the voices in this sequence, you know, Tweedledee, Tweedledum, Walrus, Carpenter, as well as the Oysters. His Disney career was extensive, including also voicing, and this was all later, Jasper in 101 Dalmatians, various characters in Mary Poppins, Colonel Hati in Buzzy the Vulture and the Jungle Book, and Otto the Blacksmith in Robin Hood. Regarding adapting the Alice books to screen, 
Walt told Hedda Hopper that while the original story may seem to be an easy one for Disney to adapt, the number of characters and stories in the book can make for a difficult translation to the screen. He told the Gossip Queen, quote, You see, we realize that we are attempting to film a classic, loved by millions, and our big problem was to bring it to the screen in a manner that would please everybody. But in the beginning, we had too much material, unquote. Therefore, they had to make decisions to cut certain characters and sequences while ensuring the sequences left in had a logical purpose and the characters present all had unique, strong personalities. In the sequence I'm discussing today, we see a walrus wearing a vest, suit, and formal hat, but he has a certain walk and swagger, suggesting he's a figure from the rough side of the tracks or chronically down on his luck. Most likely, he is wearing a second-hand outfit, and one can see wear and tear similar to Charlie Chaplin's iconic Tramp, or the villain Honest John from Pinocchio. The carpenter is dressed for the job, with tools ready that he uses competently. The oysters are wearing pink nightshirts, resting comfortably in their shells. The carpenter sees the oysters as a source of food underwater and wants to hit them with his hammer. However, the walrus is more subtle, first inviting them on their walk. The walrus says to them, Oysters come and walk with us. The day is warm and bright. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk will be a sheer delight. Disney's adaption of the poem exaggerates the original narrative poem, creating unconventional characters who really show the thought and planning behind eating the oysters. The film used a combination of dark colors, especially in the backgrounds, and bright colors, especially for characters, to create a zany appearance. Sammy Fain composed the music in the sequence, and Bob Hilliard wrote the lyrics, with heavy inspiration coming from the Alice books. Fain's career with Disney was substantial, working on features like Peter Pan, Sleeping Beauty, and The Rescuers. Songs were generally written along with storyboards prior to animation being completed. And composers and songwriters may also be directed to places where there was a lull in a storyline or a prearranged spots where a song was anticipated. Fane remembered both Walt and his brother Roy as wonderful men to work for. And Fane also remembered that Walt would listen to and approve all music, always giving constructive feedback and providing encouragement as needed. Well, 1951's Alice in Wonderland is largely beloved today, and references to the film and characters are pervasive through parks around the world, it was not a financial or critical success at the time of its release. It was not re-released theatrically during Walt's lifetime, when animated films were generally released again in theaters every seven years. He even permitted it to be shown on television, which at this time in the 50s was quite a step down, and that really showed just how poorly Walt saw the film. Ward Kimball, the animator, believed the final project was a screeching vaudeville show, and, felt that, and Walt felt that one of the issues was that Alice was not a sympathetic character. Ward Kimball also believed that one of the concerns with the film is that there were a large number of animators who needed work, otherwise they would be laid off and therefore Alice was not as streamlined as it could and should have been. And multiple sequences are not held together by a simple concrete story. Again, this screeching vaudeville show that Kimball refers to. And this is the, you know, the simple, concrete, straightforward story, you know, did Cinderella, released only a year prior, quite well. 
and we also see it in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. In this case, the walrus sequence does not necessarily add anything to the story overall and primarily is a noisy diversion. And I'll go back to Cinderella, released in 1950. You know, this sequence stands in contrast to the mice and Lucifer the cat in Cinderella, whose antics takes place alongside the main story and adds entertainment value to the movie without detracting from Cinderella's struggles. And many of the reviews of the film, released in 1951, were quite scathing. A reviewer for the Burlington Daily News observed that children he watched the film with seemed very bored. The review said in part, I looked for fright in the caterpillar scene, and Alice's plunge into Wonderland in her flood scene. I looked for laughter in the incomparable walrus and carpenter sequence, in the tea party jousting and the fixed croquet game. I looked for amazement in the flower fantasy and in Alice's growth to fabulous height and her shrinking to equally fabulous three-inch size. I was disappointed on all three scores. A Madison, Wisconsin newspaper also did not care for the picture and wrote, The walrus and the carpenter are demoted to standard antics, and their immortal ballad is hardly mingled with snatches from Jabberwocky. But the film and sequence did also receive its fair share of positive reviews. The Tampa Bay Times was more complimentary, describing the walrus sequence as excellently handled, and the film as a whole as having astonishing detail. In future episodes, I will discuss 1951's Alice in Wonderland more, and in particular two characters who received more positive attention at the time of the film's release. Sources for this episode include Hit the Beach Part 8 by Charles Gardner for CartoonResearch.com, The Disney Films by Leonard Moulton, Animation Pioneer by David Dodhand and David Halehand, The Book of Mouse by Jim Corcus, the Donald Duck Story by Chris Pearson for the summer 1984 edition of Animator Magazine, and various other books, websites, and articles. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Alts Oasis. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Again, please follow the podcast on Instagram, on my personal page at SpencerWright19070, and the show page at Walt Oasis, where I'll post pictures of subjects discussed. And feel free to email me at waltoasis at gmail.com with any feedback, questions, or episode suggestions. Episode suggestions are always welcome. Thank you for listening. <laughs>